You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB News speaks with Associate Professor at the IU Media School, Lauren Smith, about the Biden administration's recent announcement that it will not send any official representation to the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics as a protest to China's human rights abuses. More on that in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Things to Stuff on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment. WFHB producer Richard Fish tackles gift card fraud and more following today's feature report. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, December 15th. I'm Nathaniel Winesapfel. One of the deadliest tornadoes in recent memory crossed four states last week in what is potentially believed to be the longest single tornado in history. At least 90 people were killed by the storms, with around 80 deaths occurring in Kentucky, but with death tolls still rising and likely to increase even more. Climate change is likely to have played a large factor in its severity. The tornado outbreak killed people who are working overnight shifts in both a candle factory in Kentucky and an Amazon warehouse in Illinois. President Biden has already signed on to provide federal aid and assistance to the states affected. If you potentially want to help the survivors of the tornado, feel free to donate to the Western Kentucky Tornado Relief Fund or the American Red Cross. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has announced his choice, Brian Rockensuse, for the position as a new commissioner of the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. Rockensus, a veteran of the department specializing in government affairs, as well as budget and finance, will take over for Bruno Piggott, who is leaving for the federal EPA. Mr. Rockensus states that he hopes to find new creative solutions to the environmental challenges that the state faces. As part of the bipartisan infrastructure law, The state of Indiana will receive $127 million in federal funds to support water infrastructure projects. A recent Indiana Legislative Task Force focused on the issue found that the combined cost of all the necessary changes and repairs to the state's water infrastructure would be over $15 billion. Despite this discrepancy between the amount received and the amount needed, the money will be put to good use to provide clean drinking water and safer wastewater treatments. The funds potentially could go toward removing lead pipes in certain areas of the state and to help modernize rural water infrastructure. The exact projects that will be funded with the money have yet to be determined by the Holcomb administration. And that's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. On December 8th, at the Bloomington Arts Commission meeting, 
Assistant Director for the Arts, Holly Warren, gave an update on the opening of the Waldron and the future of exhibition management. She said the Waldron will reopen on January 7th. I think this is a really important event. I think the city and all of the artists and arts organizations and audience members are, they've invested a lot in this. I get calls and emails about the status of this every day. So I just want to make sure everybody knows about it and everybody knows to come. Um, Luckily, this will align with January Gallery Walk. So people will already be out and about and kind of primed to come see art things. Warren said there will be a visual art exhibit again, and she is collaborating with local galleries and artists to ensure there is solid management in place to facilitate it in the future. Assistant Curator of European and American Art Galinda Olmsted and Curator of Contemporary Art Elliot Reichart presented an exhibition that will be at the Sydney and Lois Ashkenazi Museum of Art. The board gave feedback and discussed ideas for public engagement. Board member Rachel Kabukala asked about the museum's plans regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion, and if organizations such as the First Nations Education and Cultural Center have been contacted. Olmsted said there is an audience committee that addresses the museum's demographics. We are working both with the sociology department at IU and with outside research firms to develop a strategy for doing a visitor survey that's going to give us a baseline to move forward to think about how can we be more expansive um, in our audience. In terms of collaboration with both on-campus and off-campus groups to make sure that people know about this exhibition and its content, I'm really hoping that we can have your help in that. We have a list of organizations, um, both on campus and in the community, who we think that we should be meeting with and talking to about this exhibition. We have contacts for some of those, um, but I'd be so grateful if we could circulate a list to you. And even if you just know, like you used to live down the street from someone who works at First Nation office at IU, those little connections can really help get our email read to say, oh, so-and-so suggested that I get in touch with you. That also, I think, helps make people feel really included and considered. Um, So my hope is that we can send that list to you um, after this meeting and that um, you can sort of comb through and drop in any contacts you might have. And that's going to help us with the next phase of this sort of community outreach component. The next board meeting will be held on January 12th. At the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District Board meeting on December 9th, Mayor John Hamilton asked the board why there was an increase in revenue this year compared to others. Board member Cheryl Munson added that the revenue picked up in June 2021. It looks like um, in 2021, since June, there has been uh, increased uh, revenue coming in um, compared to 2020, more so than the first half of the year. Board member Isabel Piedmont-Smith said she noticed that the metal recycling generated $25,000 more than had been projected. Executive Director Tom McGlasson confirmed that they are receiving more money for scrap metal. I, I've not specifically looked at that, um, but just, you know, um, general information, you know, I, I would want to look and at, at, compare our volumes, um, you know, from previous years, which that budget would have been based on. But I, but I do know as a result of COVID, scrap prices are up. Um, mm. So, you know, we are getting, you know, more than we estimated Um, for the metal that we're collecting. The next meeting will be held on January 13th. 
the Monroe County Commissioners voted to amend a zoning ordinance for future development at their December 8th meeting. The amendment only affects the development of land greater than five acres. Assistant Director of the Planning Department, Jackie Nestor-Jalen, presented the amendment. So just a quick summary of this text amendment. This is Ordinance 2021-57. It's amendment to Chapter 815, which is Site Plan Review. And the request this morning is to add on an addition to allow for phasing of larger projects. So right now we allow for phasing under our subdivision control ordinance, and we also allow for phasing for lands that are zoned plan unit development. Um, The only thing that this leaves out is for uh, properties that are zoned by right, not a plan unit development that do not involve a subdivision are currently left out of the phasing possibility. So we are adding this in to be consistent with other parts of the ordinance Jalen explained the purpose of the amendment and how the sanctions benefit Monroe County residents. The benefit of phasing for the planning department and for um, the county and the developer is that we can potentially reduce the amount of ground that is disturbed at the initial onset of the project um, if they choose to do so in phases. Um, Additionally, it allows us to see the entire scope of the project at once without limiting their ability to occupy uh, structures as they're completed within phases. But it still gives us the protection and the leverage of future phases and future buildings that are tied to later requirements and making sure each phase is standalone by the ordinance. So I talked a little bit about the applicability. They have to be at least five acres. Um, When we're talking about phasing, how we will review this in the planning office is that they're actually going to have both an illustrative map clearly delineating each phase, as well as a combined narrative. So we understand that both of these will be able to be enforceable by the county if and when they get to the point where they're requesting occupancy and a land use certificate from planning. So we think that these two items together will give us um, a strong ability to enforce the ordinance. Commissioner Lee Jones expressed her support for the ordinance. I think this is an excellent amendment to the chapter. It really makes sure that, that things go the way they're supposed to. Um, which doesn't always happen. So I'm very supportive of this. Commission member Julie Thomas said that the amendment would help protect Monroe County residents from things such as stormwater runoff while allowing community members to get projects approved in a timely manner. The amendment passed unanimously. Thomas reminded county residents that applications for Monroe County boards and commissions are available. She encouraged individuals who are interested in making the community better to apply. The next county commissioner's meeting will be held on December 15th. The United States will not send officials to the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing as a protest to China's, quote, ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in Zhejiang and other human rights abuses, end quote. 
Human rights groups accuse China of detaining more than one million Uyghurs, the largest ethnic minority group in the province of Zhejiang, and placing them in a network of re-education camps. Hundreds of thousands were sentenced to prison terms. Allegations range from torture, sexual abuse, and even genocide. Several nations have followed suit after the announcement from the President Biden administration, including Canada, the UK, and Australia. Lauren Smith, associate professor at the IU Media School with a focus on sports media, says the diplomatic boycott can begin the conversation. I think given everything that is happening in China, I think with, you know, obviously the the abuses of Muslims in the region, you know, crackdowns on the democracy protests in Hong Kong. There's also the disappearance of uh, one of the tennis stars from public life after she leveled accusations against the Communist Party. It's not surprising. It's not surprising to me that the U- it's not only the U.S. at this point. It's now, I believe, we're up to six different countries, the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia. All of these countries have said, no, this is a stand that we need to take. And it's it's a challenging way to take a stand because ultimately, you know, what what does it really do? You know, the U.S. not showing up for a diplomatic boycott isn't all of a sudden going to magically make all of those issues disappear. But it is a way for the U.S. and other nations to take a stand and say, we don't agree with what is going on. We do not approve of this behavior. We do not approve of, of the things that are, are happening in the country. And we won't go to that country and, you know, tacitly support what is happening there. Smith says that sports and politics have remained intertwined since the dawn of organized sports. She pushes back against the idea that you should leave politics out of sports. You know, if you go back to the first Olympics, if you go back to the Greek city-states, you know, sport was a means for political leaders to get together and discuss diplomatic issues. So we've seen throughout the course of history over sport, Roman gladiators and, you know, looking to the 1936 Olympics, looking to the protests during the civil rights era. Sport and politics is something that is, and I tell my students all the time, it is inherently intertwined and they are definitely bedfellows. What most people think about when they think about politics and sport are instances of, you know, standing out activism and protest. And that's where backlash comes against keep politics out of sport. But but they're there. They're intertwined all the way from public funding of stadiums to protests. She gave examples of how sports influenced political change throughout history. Smith argued that progress often happens in sports before it's reflected in policy. If you look at Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in baseball, that happened six to eight years before Brown versus the Board of Education. If you look at the implementation of Title IX in 1972, you can go back to about 1967 and you can see examples of women starting to push forward and participate in sport that had been previously off limits to them. You know, we've had gay players come out in different sports, which has opened up conversation about LGBTQ rights. You know, in the past couple of years, we've really started to have more conversations about mental health, and we can point to athletes for that. So, you know, when people may knee-jerk reactions say politics and sport don't belong together, they shouldn't be there, I would urge people to take a step back and consider the long history and consider how sport has been a catalyst for change in society. While the U.S. will issue a diplomatic boycott, it does not apply to athletes. Athletes may still participate in the Winter Games. In 1980, the United States boycotted the Moscow Olympics over the Cold War tensions. Athletes were not allowed to participate. Smith said the boycott didn't lead to any political change, and it seemed to only penalize athletes. 
athletes stayed home and nothing got done, right? You know, there may have been a conversation or two, but ultimately it didn't lead to wide-scale political change. And while I think sport is a place that can open up conversations where I think sport can lead to, you know, change, I don't necessarily think holding the athletes back from participating in the Olympics is the right move to do that. You know, I know I said that sport and politics are inherently intertwined, but when you look at when you look at the athlete side of it, these are athletes that have been training, you know, their whole life for, for years, for decades. Many of them, this would be their only shot at Olympic Games, depending on their sport. Some sports are not reasonable to expect two, three, four Olympic Games. And so at the end of the day, if there hasn't been proven success, um, proven demonstrated success in withholding athletes and not letting them participate, then I think ultimately you're punishing individuals who don't have a part in this process and don't have a say. All in all, Smith agrees with the diplomatic boycott. She described it as, quote, smart and strategic move, given the world stage the Olympic has to offer. This is an event that the entire world will tune into and watch in some form. And so to take a stand and say we are not participating, that news filters out from just outside the U.S. It reaches other countries. It reaches other leaders. It reaches other individuals. They can take a stand around St. Patrick's Day when there's no Olympics going on, and and probably a good majority of the people would would shrug their shoulders and either not even know what's going on or maybe not pay attention to it. But given the command and given the presence and given the prestige of the Olympics, it's a very big stage with which to get this message out. And so when people are tuning to the Olympics, I mean, obviously when they watch NBC, when they watch you know any of the pre-Olympic coverage, I'm pretty certain that you know the NBC affiliates and the NBC anchors that are over in Beijing are going to be talking about this move. So based on the scope of the audience that will be watching, you know, it's a large audience to raise the awareness about what's going on. While sports and politics are indeed intertwined, the future can only determine whether or not the diplomatic move will lead to political change. Up next, things to stuff on Better Beware. WFHB producer Richard Fish tackles gift card fraud and more in your weekly consumer watchdog segment. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Around the holidays, there are huge promotions for small, relatively inexpensive gifts called stocking stuffers. Some are cute, some are silly, some are outrageous, some are delicious, some are actually fun and practical, but some are just plain bogus. One of them, again this year, is a gadget for your car. It's supposed to plug into the diagnostic port, a computer connector under your dashboard that a service technician uses, which is known as an OBD2 port. These gadgets claim to reprogram the computer that controls the engine in most modern cars, and the ads promise to save you anywhere from 30 to 50 percent on fuel. Don't believe it. 
no matter how many fake reviews you find online. Collectively, these gadgets are known as OBD2 fuel savers. The marketers mostly get them from China for about three bucks, then package and promote the heck out of them, and will sucker you out of about forty dollars if you fall for it. The ads show up all over the place with names like EcoTune, EcoBox, and Bang Hotfire. Whatever they're called, these are not things you want to stuff in a stocking. A better place would be a bodily orifice of someone who's selling them. And then there are gift cards. Not only do they fit in a stocking, but they let the recipient choose their own gift, so it's not your fault if they don't like it. But according to the Federal Trade Commission, gift card fraudsters raked in over 148 million bucks in the first nine months of this year. Most of that is from con games where the swindler wants you to pay using a gift card, like the Ghanifs who call you and threaten you with arrest for back taxes or missing jury duty or something. The top five gift cards used in swindles are from Target, Google Play, Apple, eBay, and Walmart. Anybody who claims to be from the government or tech support or a lawyer, a cop, a banker, or even a kidnapper, and wants you to pay immediately using a gift card, especially the ones who want to stay on the phone while you go and buy one. Anybody like that is a crook who only deserves to get rude noises before you hang up. But there are some scams that rip off people who just buy gift cards as gifts, too. If you're doing that this year, don't buy them online. Go to a store you know and trust. Check the card out before you pay. Are the packaging and protective stickers intact? If not, pick another one. Is the PIN number showing? If so, put it back. And make sure to keep the receipt in case there's a problem. If you do get scammed, report it. Go online to reportfraud.ftc.gov. That's reportfraud, all one word, .ftc.gov. Whatever holiday you're celebrating, make sure it's a happy one. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. 
today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinzapfel and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Hearabouts, Asian American Midwest Radio. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 